Good morning, everyone. So good to see you all. What a pleasure to worship the Lord in song together. And that's what we're talking about today, rejoicing in God who is good. Uh, just one announcement. We have uh, Chris's, he's doing a new believers course uh, starting Tuesday. So if you're interested in that, want to learn more about the foundations of faith or refresher, feel free to talk to him and uh, attend that event. Should be good. I think it's a 13-week course. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for your goodness that you caused the sun to shine, that you are gracious and just glorious in every way. Lord, we just love you and are so grateful that we can call you Father, that you've adopted us as your children, that you've given us your word and your wisdom, and that we can learn of you, that we can grow in grace and be filled with your spirit, that we can be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life in your presence. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts this morning through your word, that we'd be receptive and rejoice in who you are and all you've done in Jesus' name. Amen. Many people today have grown up with the internet, can't imagine life without it, and uh, really don't want to. Um, and some of us, too, that have become dependent on the internet, um, we see the value of it. I remember a time in year eight, or year nine, actually, where a search engine would have been quite helpful when I was having a very robust discussion in a geography class it was quite an immature argument with a girl over the difference between a hurricane and a cyclone. And uh, the voices kept getting a little bit louder, and it was clear that there were battle lines drawn, and neither of us was going to budge on that one. And uh, even if at that moment, if someone had broken out a dictionary and says, this is the definition of a hurricane or cyclone, and it contradicted what we thought, well, we wouldn't have accepted it. We would have gone to find another dictionary or an encyclopedia or something else that, that seemed to fit our idea. For those who are wondering, the difference is not because of what they are, but where they are located. So that's why we we're learning about that in geography class, because hurricanes, tropical storm, fall, they form over the North Atlantic Ocean, the Northeast Pacific Ocean. Cyclones are formed over the South Pacific and Indian ocean. So thank, thanks Google for that answer. But uh, for God to reveal even after 30 years, just how proud and arrogant my heart was at that time. And uh, my need and, and really the need of all of us to just humble ourselves before him. We need him to teach us wisdom. Brilliant minds like Eratosthenes, Sir Isaac Newton, Mary Curie. These are people who made landmark discoveries they make us feel like dim-witted sheep in comparison. Um, they don't compare to the magnificent genius of God who created them and us, who created this world and all that we see. You could turn in your Bibles to Job 38. In our passage today, we'll see that God's able to do what no man can, that he convinces people of their ignorance, that he has made us live He's revealed himself to us and that we should rejoice in him that he would be feared. Like the things that God has done, it's good for us. To, it, they're all around us so we can miss the, the marvel, to marvel over them, how great they are and how great God is. Because we can marvel at the thing, we can marvel at the discovery, but what about the God who gave that mind brilliance that made the sun to shine in the heavens? So up to this point in the book of Job, the primary scene has been Job lamenting 
on a, really a bed of dust and ashes, um, scraping his boils, really asking, why has this happened to me? And suffering. Job's friends weighed in, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and it ended in a stalemate because they were unable to convince him that he had, they were certain that this had came upon him because he had sinned in some way, but Job held fast to his integrity. Younger Elihu, he joins in annoyed with everyone. He seems angry that Job proudly justified himself rather than glorifying God. And he was irritated with Job's friends for attacking him without evidence and for being able, not being able to convince him, even though they had experience and they were of great age. Now the book reaches the crescendo that really we've all been waiting for. When Job gets what he wanted and much more when God speaks. So now we've, we've been reading God's word to this point, but now God is going to take a uh, stage and speak for himself. A lot of people talking about God, but now God speaks. And Job had said in Job 31, 35, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the almighty would answer me that my prosecutor had written a book. And now God turns the tables on Job with this cross-examination which revealed God's greatness and how man cannot measure up. Over four chapters, God is going to ask a series of questions. And in asking those questions, he demonstrates his supremacy and his sovereignty over all things and creating the world and ordering it, directing the operations of the universe and the animals, all according to his design and his laws. And he speaks of the movement of heavenly uh, planets and the stars and the behavior of animals on earth. And uh, he asks questions that there are no answers to. Only God knows these questions that he's asking. But we read these questions so we might marvel over the God who is the answer, who knows them, but he doesn't just know the facts, he actually does them. Job 38, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. As Elihu was speaking, he started to speak about clouds that seemed to be building on the horizon. And now God speaks to Job audibly out of the whirlwind. And he says, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And when God asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. It's because he knows the answer and he revealed himself to be the one who is the only one who knows the answer that really he's the answer in himself. And Elihu had said in Job 37, 19, the previous chapter, teach us what we should say to him for we can prepare nothing because of the darkness. So it's a beautiful sun shining today. Like we're in the light. We see nature all around us. There's the discoveries of brilliant minds, but we really remain in the dark before God who spoke light into existence out of nothing. We can't conceive of how that's possible, how God would create everything from nothing and just speak it. And it is God asked knowing who had been talking and Job would later answer as the one singled out by God. So some would say that, well, maybe he's speaking to Elihu, but there was no confusion among the people there because Elihu doesn't say another word. Job answers God in the chapters to come. 
their questions had clouded the goodness and greatness of God who would bring clarity. And he's like, brace yourself, Job. I am going to question you now and you shall answer me. Job had been pleading for God to vindicate him. Like, Lord, Lord, show that these people are wrong and that I'm actually right. And suddenly Job is put on the stand by God. And he begins to rebuke, but then it changes to this revelation of God's mightiness, who he is and all he's done. Verse four, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements. Surely, you know, or who stretched the line upon it to what were its foundations fastened or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Previously, Job and his friends, they were the ones who claimed to have knowledge. They refuted all the arguments and accusations brought against them. And now God employs this, this dose of irony here to say, okay, I have some questions to ask now. Um, he doesn't trot out like the answer to your question, A, Job is this. And the answer to your question, B, is this. He's like, now I have some questions before he deals with their questions. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Now it's obvious Job was not there because he had not been born. And uh, we can't even remember most of our living days, much less what happened before we were born. But God's eternal. He's always been. He will ever be. And he doesn't only just have knowledge and understanding of when and how the earth was created. But he laid the foundations, he built, he, he made the earth. And in, in this passage, we'll see that he employs terms that Job would have been familiar with. He's like, well, you build a house. I built the heavens. You know, like I established those. And we'll see, this will build continually. Today, foundations, they're a leveled concrete pad. God hung the earth on nothing. Like, I don't know how he did that. We need like a a flat space. Like there's some building in our area and there's earth movers out there and they're flattening the ground and putting these concrete pads down and then they'll build on top of that. But he's saying, where were you when I constructed the earth, when I built it? And he employs that imagery of the way people built a house, a foundation, stones and wood were measured to size, fasteners held them together. Was Job there to see how he did that? Was he an eyewitness? It's clear Job was not there. And that God did all these things without Job's knowledge or understanding or ours too. Job 38, eight, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb. When I made the clouds, it's garment and thick darkness, it's swaddling band. When I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors. When I said this far, you may come, but no farther. And here your proud waves must stop. Now he uses this imagery of the, the sea bursting forth from a womb, like being born, but then being contained. That the earth has been surrounded with clothes, clouds like clothing. And I uh, was reminded that the depths of the sea, there's also different levels, just like in the atmosphere, there's different levels. Um, so you have the first zone is the upper 200 meters. And it just makes me feel very small. Where it's like, how deep can I dive? Well, it goes 200 meters. And that's the sunlight or euphotic zone. 
Beyond the euphotic zone, no plants grow because photosynthesis is impossible. So that's from 200 to 1,000 meters is the twilight zone or the dysphotic zone. And then you have beyond 1,000 meters, which goes to 4,000 meters, and then 4,000 to 6,000 meters, and then beyond 6,000 meters. And I'm like, wow, that is pretty deep. That's a lot of water, right? The earth is covered by 70% water-ish, and yet it stays in its defined oceans. Amazing. Man sets up a fence. He has a gate, and he locks it, right? You lock the front door of your house. You lock your car. But he's like, well, I caused the, the sea to be birthed, and I control its waves, the chaos of the sea. I just shut it in. I put it exactly where I want it. It says he made a boundary between sea and dry land. It says in Psalm 104.9, you have set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. Job had swaddled babies, but he couldn't have swaddled the earth in clouds and water. So it's like that, that kind of takes it up a notch, right? Because we're like, I remember one time, it, this is just a total aside, but we were at a, a wedding and Laura was pregnant, I think with... Uh, one of our two children and the lady came up and just said oh how like how many is this for you and Laura said oh it's my first or second I don't remember but she's like well this is my 13th and it's like whoa that was like a major flex and uh, but it was kind of like right okay we talk about well how many kids have you had but but this is something totally different like well who, who's done this great thing to con to make the ocean and then contain it Phenomenal. What can you say to that? Now, there was a time in the temple where the Jews came up to Jesus and they asked him, by what authority do you do these things? As he taught the people, who gave you this authority? And instead of answering them directly, Luke 20 verse three and four says, but he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? The idea being you answer my question first, then I will answer your question because they refused to answer his question out of fear of the Jews because they're like, Hmm, you know, the people think that John was a prophet. We don't agree with his baptism. So they go, we don't know. And that showed that they would not believe his answer. So he says, I'm not going to answer your question. And God is doing a similar thing to Job here where he's saying, Job, you've asked a lot of questions, but I'm going to ask you questions first. If you can answer my questions, if you've done what I've done, then I'll answer you which is a pretty high bar, right? Only God can do that. So God called Job out. Job was a man of great understanding and wisdom, but the kind of questions God's asking, it's abundantly clear. It's beyond him and beyond us. God continues in verse 12. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It takes on form like clay under a seal and stands out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld and the upraised arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea or have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. God says like, where were you, Job? Who shut the sea? Who shut it in? Then he says, have you commanded the morning? Like since you were born, we won't go before you were born, but since you were born, were you in charge of making it day and night? 
caused the sun to rise and set. That was your job. You've done that. Like, what have you done? Where have you gone? What have you seen, Job? These are the kind of questions. These are things that only God knows, things that only he has seen. Unlike God, the days of Job had a beginning. He was not the commander of the sunrise. God points out how the rising of the sun, it ended the night season, that it caused criminal activity carried under the cover of night to cease, that he broke the upraised arm of the wicked. And in my mind, I'm like, you see these guys scuffling in an alleyway and one's raising his arm to strike. But when that cop car comes around the corner and the light is shining on them, it's kind of like, oh, morning officer, nothing to see here. Everything's fine. We're just having a little chat, right? And God's like, I do that every day. I take away the darkness of the wicked. They will hide and do their evil deeds under the cover of darkness, but I unmask them. I break their power. I break the power of darkness. God said in sunrise, the earth takes on form like clay under a seal. And a seal was something used to make an impression like on a brick or on the um, wax with a signet ring. It would cause a ridge and a design to form that would cast a shadow. And he's like, you've done that, right? You've, you've made your mark on a piece of clay or on concrete, but I've done that over the earth where the sun rises and it shows my furrows and hills and valleys and the rocky crags and everything that I've made. You just compare that little seal on the back of an envelope to the mountain ranges and what God has made. Wow. God continues to act, ask Job questions. He demands answers. Have you entered the springs of the sea? Have you walked in search of the depths. Do you know where the gates of death are? Even if Job could walk underwater, if he had diving equipment, waterproof lights, or a submarine, he would not have dared to enter the underwater springs that vent up through the Atlantic floor or other places where they've been discovered. He speaks of the gates of death. That's a boundary that Job did not know. He had never been through that gate because he was still alive. He, he nor his friends had crossed that threshold. And he says, have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Now to comprehend, it means to carefully consider. That's something Eratosthenes estimated around 240 BC using geometry as he was a librarian in Alexandria, Egypt. And this totally just shook my idea of what a librarian does. I'm like, wow, this guy is pretty, pretty smart to be able to work these kind of things out. He was a pioneer of geography. He invented latitude and longitude. And he heard of a well. So he's in Alexandria. And he hears about a well in Aswan, modern day Aswan, Egypt, where at midday during the summer solstice, which is in the northern hemisphere, from 20 to 22 June, there was a deep well where the sun was directly overhead at noon. So you could look in the bottom of the well and there were no shadows on the water. So it was a unique place. So he's like, well, I need to get a measurement from here to there. So he had some professional surveyors of the day measure the distance between the cities. Then he set up a pole in Alexandria and he says, I wonder, is there going to be a shadow at that time next year at this solstice? And there was a shadow. So he measured the angles. And from that, the distance and the ge geog geometry, he estimated the earth to be around 
250,000 stadia, um, which was a stadium measurement. And it was very, very accurate. It was surprisingly accurate. And he calculated the, the angle of the axis of the earth. So it's like, wow, he, he considered it. But you know, he didn't walk that distance between those cities. He didn't walk the distance around the whole earth. He had to calculate. He had to estimate. God just knew because he designed it. He made it. So you can make your calculations. You can do your estimations. But only God knows. The King James puts it, have you perceived the breadth of the earth? You could also put this, have you, have you observed the expanse? So that's like how, the, like everything on it, not just the circumference, but everything. If, if God had asked me, have you observed the expanse of Riverston or the Hillshire or Sydney? I would have to say no. I know only a little bit. I haven't gone in, down every street or into every house. I haven't dug deep under the earth. Um, I only know a few things about my immediate area, like the way that I get home and that way changes when there's a little construction and I'm going down that road and, oh, the road's closed. So I have to go a different way and figure something out. I bet you don't know everything that's in your closet. I bet you don't know everything that's in your garage and those boxes that have been there for a while or in your attic, right? There's a lot that we don't know. Kids are classic. It takes a long time to clean and organize their room because they discover all of their toys that they forgot about. They, they were their toys. They're like, wow, this is fun. I haven't seen this in a while. It's like meeting old friends. If, they don't, if we don't comprehend what's in those boxes and we're surprised when we move how much we've accumulated or that there were like, oh, that's where that was and we had totally forgotten about it. Well, who but God can perceive and comprehend all that he's created according to his wisdom? God continues in verse 19. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place that you may take it to its territory, that you may know the paths to its home? Do you know it because you were born then or because the number of your days is great? Have you entered the treasury of snow or have you seen the treasury of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble for the day of battle and war? By what light way is light diffused or the east wind scattered over the earth? God personifies light and darkness as living in houses. And he's like, do you know the way to their house? Do you know where they hang out? Uh, do you know the way to their house? Because your childhood friends, you grew up together and you, you, you hang out with them a lot. Besides the sun or the moon, the only source of light Job had, anyone had, was flame. That was it. And that's hard to comprehend when you say you have the light of a fire or a candle, a torch, like on a stick. Those are your light sources. I mean, imagine how different life would, life would be if you only had the light of the sun, the moon, and fire. Very different. And when you talk about light, all those things are not light in themselves. They just produce some light, right? So the sun is an actual orb in the heavens that produces light, but it's not light itself. And same thing with fire. It gives off light, but you wouldn't say that's light. No, it, it produces light. So he's like, do you know anything about light and where it comes from, how it's produced? By which way is light diffused? It was Isaac Newton who discovered that you could separate 
light in a prism that the white light of the sun, it's actually a combination of a whole spectrum of visible light that when it all mixes together, it is white light. It was discovered that light is, it is composed of particles that it acts as a wave. And in 1905, Einstein discovered light quantum, which is a unit of light later known as a photon. And I am sure there is a lot more to learn about light that we have no idea about. And when you talk about LED lights, which most in this room are, um, it was in 1962, red light. Uh, so let's see, what is it called? A light emitting diode, red light invented in 1962. And it wasn't until 1993 when they figured out how to make blue light, which you need to make white light. So interesting. It interests me anyway. God said this in Isaiah 45, five through seven, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you though. You have not known me that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord do all these things. Like God is glorious. He does all. He has all power and wisdom and he under, has all understanding. And he says, have you entered the treasury of snow? The hail that I've set aside for the time of trouble. Now living in Sydney and we can have some pretty serious uh, thunder and lightning and hail. And as a kid, hail was very novel because we didn't get that much rain in San Diego. But when it hailed, it's like, oh, it's hailing. It would all run to the window and oh, wow. Okay. And it's cool. Like you didn't want to go out in it and get hailed on. But uh, we do see in the Bible, hail several times is used in judgment. Now it doesn't follow. However, that when snow or hail falls, it's judgment for sin any more than Job's trial of his sickness was because of his sin, right? But it, ha it is like a tool in God's arsenal. If he wants to, he can bust that out at any time. We see that hail was a plague God visited upon Egypt in Exodus 2 and the Canaanites in Joshua 10. God used hail to chasten rebellious Israel in Haggai 2.17. He says, I struck you with blight and mildew and hail and all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. So God did that to get his people's attention, that they would come to him and trust him. And there's also a prophetic ring to God's word in Job concerning the time of trouble, which can refer to Jacob's trouble, that great tribulation we read of in Jeremiah 37. It says, alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Before the return of Jesus to the world, to deliver those who are born again during the tribulation period, there will be many judgments poured out on the earth, and hail is mentioned as one of them. We read this in Revelation 16, 21. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent, Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. You know how heavy a talent is? About 33 kilos. That's like hail I have never seen. And that's in God's arsenal. And that's just the edges of his ways. Job 30 verse 25. Who has divided a channel for the overflowing water? Or a path for the thunderbolt to cause it to rain on a land where there is no one, a wilderness in which there is no man to satisfy the desolate waste and cause to spring forth the growth of tender grass. 
Has the rain a father or who has begotten the drops of dew from whose womb comes the ice and the frost of heaven? Who gives it birth? The waters harden like stone and the surface of the deep is frozen. God asks, who's responsible for the rain to fall? To make the water rush together, to cause the process of erosion to take place, to make a path for the thunderbolt. No one could claim to make a path for a thunderbolt. I mean, we look at it and we miss it half the time. We hear the thunder. We're like, did you see that? No. Where was it? Oh, it was over there. Oh, it's just, you know, and it happens almost at random. You have no idea what it's going to look like. And it's so quick. But it's like God does that, not man. And then he says, who causes it to rain on a desolate wilderness where no one dwells so grass grows? I'm always very grateful for the rain God sends. When it's dry and been dry for a while, some of us will water our lawns or our gardens. We don't want them to dry up and die. And I'm careful when I water not to water the street or the footpath or the driveway, or my neighbor's yard, right? I contain the water in my area. But God's like, I cause it to rain where there's no one. You would say it's a waste of water to water over there. But I do that freely. I do that all the time. And I make grass grow where there's nobody. Farmers irrigate their crops in their own fields. God causes his rain to fall where there's no one. He has these life-sustaining purposes that we are ignorant of. And God is so generous with his good gifts to us. And he continues to use this illustrative language. He says, has the rain a father? Who begets the dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to frost? These are things we ask about things we've seen, right? Like after David killed Goliath, King Saul asked, whose son is this? So he sees David. And he says, where did he come from? Who is his family? Job, he had seen rain, dew, ice, and frost, but he never saw where they came from. Dew just seems to appear from nothing. Like you wake up in the morning and there's dew everywhere. You didn't see it fall, but there it is. It's condensed on the grass. Uh, waterfalls, they look frozen in time. Have you seen frozen waterfalls? I mean, they are beautiful things. And you wonder, how did that happen? How, how did it flow in that way? During summer, the water was warm. There's fish jumping. And then in the winter, it's hard as stone. You can drive a car over it. The questions that God asked, it causes me to consider the many things that I see without thinking of all the processes involved. I don't really know what's going on. I know that the freezing point of Water is, you know, zero and the boiling point of water is a hundred. And that's kind of enough. Like I, I don't really know what's happening though at that moment at a molecular level, at an atomic level. But God understands that completely. God knows what we cannot know or what we don't care to know. I mean, wouldn't you say there's some things where you just go, you know, I don't care. But it's a good thing God cares because he's created everything to be as it is. And he cares about everyone, everything. He's given us water and oxygen. And without him, we couldn't survive or know a thing. 
Continuing in verse 31, can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out Maseroth in its season? Or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you set their dominion over the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that an abundance of water may cover you? Can you send out lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Could you please turn back in your Bibles to Job 9 verse 8 through 10. This is what Job said concerning God's genius in his creation of the constellations you can see from the Northern Hemisphere. Job chapter 9, verses 8 through 10. So Job had said this, and God's like responding to what Job had previously said. Now Job is speaking in past tense, like God's created it, and then God brings it to present tense, like can you do this, suggesting that God didn't just make it, but he commands and orders them every day. Pretty cool. Job 9, 8 through 10. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. He does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. So from where Job was, he could see the bear, Orion, and Pleiades. He couldn't see the constellations of the south because the the Earth is in the way. And God asked Job, can you bind the Pleiades cluster? Can you hold those together yourself, Job? Can you loose the belt of Orion? Can you have those stars just scatter from their positions? Can you cause Maseroth to appear or guide the great bear? Who but God could. Like we look at, we don't use the stars very often for navigation, to know the seasons or anything. But that's the way they would know it in those days. Uh, these particular constellations are significant because the bear and its children, that was a daily rotation. They would move through the sky once a day. Uh, the Maseroth, that's a collection of 12 constellations, one for each month. It's an annual rotation. Every year we buy a diary, right? You, you put in some dates in that diary or calendar. We refer to our phones and our clocks to know what day it is or what time it is. God has those markers in the heavens with the sun, with the moon, with the stars. The stars that we've kind of drowned out because of all the light that our cities emit. This is what God said in Genesis 1, 14 and 15. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. So age, ages before Isaac Newton discovered mathematic formulas to measure gravity and planetary motion, God was actually doing it. I think that's so amazing. God designed it. He's been at the controls upholding it all this time, continually. And it's 20 February, uh, not because yesterday was 19 February, because my phone told me it is, but because God guides the sun, the stars, and the moon, and the earth today, and he's made it beautiful. Just, I'm amazed at the awesomeness of our God. Where he says, can you make the clouds rain or direct lightning to follow your commands? Make it rain. God does that. God does globally, universally, infinitely more than man ever could. Verse 36 in Job 38. Who has put wisdom in the mind? 
Or who has given understanding to the heart? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can pour out the bottles of heaven when the dust hardens in clumps and the clods cling together? Job and his friends, they claim to have wisdom, but if they did, who put it there? Where did their understanding come from? Everything that we know, we learn from someone or something. So who has given understanding to the hearts of men? God. He's the one who enables us to understand. The number of the clouds. You guys have watched the clouds overhead and how they don't stay the same. They keep changing. And imagine, like, even in just what you can see, to try to number them would be difficult because they're always changing. And then imagine across the entire globe. How could you possibly do that? But God knows. It's he who's changing them. Job was able to take a skin of water, or they would call it a bottle, but he would be able to pour some water and water plants in his garden. And he's like, well, who's put the bottles in the heavens? Well, the heavens don't have actual bottles. But again, he's playing off of the things that Job does. Job had water in a skin, but could he put it in the heavens? Could he cause it to fall over everyone? The earth does not have a womb. The earth does not have foundations measured with a line. God is using this imagery to show his supremacy over man. That he's saying, these are the things you can do. But look what I have done and what I am doing right now. How do you stack up Job? And he's letting Job come to that conclusion himself. That we will see him come to. Where he's like, God, you're the only wise one there is. You're the only one with real power and wisdom and knowledge and understanding. It's like we lock our front doors. God locks the seas in. We switch on a light. God causes the sun to shine and to give light to everyone. For a point of application, please turn to what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3, starting in verse 10. This is a, an encouragement I've taken to heart. Ecclesiastes 3, 10 through 14 in the Old Testament. He says this, I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them to rejoice and to do good in their lives. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. Not one of us can see or know or understand or do or go where God has and all the things that he's done and accomplished. It's God who's given us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand, hands to work, and uh, a heart that desires to discover the abundant life that he's provided us. The ability to joy anything in this life, it is a gift from God. So if there's something you enjoy, if there's something you find delight in, know that's God who's put that delight in your heart. And it's a gift from him that we should cherish, but we should not love the gift more than the giver. We are to look to him and to praise and thank him and glorify him for all that he's provided with gratitude 
And God's done an awesome thing in sending Jesus to be the savior of the world, to give eternal life to all who trust in him. I mean, that's an abundant life. God has done all these things for us, what God spoke about to Job and, and also in our lives to the end that we would fear and honor him, right? That's what he says. God does this to the end that men should fear him. Not one of us can know or do anything God does, but we can rejoice in God for who he is and how he's revealed himself to us. He is good. He is glorious. And how, what a comfort it is to know he is, he is supreme and that he is filled with love and grace. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your power, just your infinite wisdom. The things that you do, the things that you have done, your creation is amazing. And even the things we see in this world with technology and discoveries that people have made, but Lord, they pale in comparison to how great and glorious you are. How wise and wonderful you are in every way to love us, to care for us, to provide the rain in season, day and night you're with us. Lord, we rejoice to know you and to draw near to you now, to entrust our lives today and our future forever into your hands as we rejoice in the goodness of God in the land of the living. Thank you, Lord, for life. Thank you for your love and forgiveness. And thank you for opening our eyes to see how glorious you are and in the things that we, we, we can be very proud of that we're doing. But Lord, how much more wonderful and praiseworthy and glorious you are. We worship you, Lord. We bow before you and reverence you. I pray you would put in us a fear of God, that we would stay away from sin, that we would confess it, that we would rejoice in what is good. We would set our minds on things above, not on things of this earth. And uh, thank you for humbling the haughty and arrogant heart. Thank you for revealing your truth and causing your light to shine. And we ask for your, your son Jesus to be glorified in our lives now and forever. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.